Welcome to episode 10 of the VMAS podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So we're going to start off in Luke 14. Why were the Pharisees upset with Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath? Maybe we should just consider, first of all, uh, who the Pharisees are uh, in relationship to some of the other groups at that time. Uh, Help us understand why they had such a particular problem with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So Pharisees were one group, Sadducees another, Zealots a third group, and then the Essenes were a fourth. Uh, the Pharisees believed that the, uh, the kingdom of God, these, all these groups are looking for the kingdom of God. This is one of the reasons why when Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God, he doesn't have to define it. Right. Right? The kingdom of God is something that was already defined from the Old Testament, and the people of Israel were awaiting the return of the king and the kingdom to come. And the Pharisees thought that the kingdom would come through law-keeping. Mm. Right? They did everything they could to keep the law, even creating laws to keep the laws. So this right, is the yeah. traditions that Jesus is dealing with them on. They would create traditions that actually infract the law, but they thought they were keeping the law. Sadducees, by, on the other hand, believed that by um, political power and rule, they could enact the kingdom. They were very politically motivated, would work with Rome in order to kind of establish things going on in Israel. And then the zealots were the ones who were willing to do anything uh, to be able to kind of even sometimes violently uh, overthrow and take on the kingdom, having revolts there in Israel. And then the Essenes were the ones that we know today who lived in Qumran. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, mm-hmm. uh, close to the Dead Sea. Uh, they separated themselves, maybe a community of 200 or 300 people uh, at that time, because they also believed in the kingdom of God, and they were purifying themselves in order to wait for that kingdom to come. Right. So in this case, the Pharisees get upset with Jesus uh, healing on the Sabbath because he was breaking the Sabbath. And one of the reasons why the people of Israel were sent into exile in the Old Testament was because of the fact that they didn't keep the Sabbath. Right. And so now they have this man who's announcing himself as a Messiah, as a king, or as, the, as uh, the one who's to come, and uh, he's not keeping the Sabbath. And so, of course, they're going to be upset with that because this is going to only invite the judgment of God upon them. Oh, okay. But in fact, it's actually going to be the reverse because they don't see that the king has come. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, that they will invite the judgment of God, but it won't because of their Sabbath keeping. It will be because they're actually denying the one who's come to give them Sabbath rest. So I think that's one of the things of why they're upset. Actually, what Jesus does by healing the man on the Sabbath is to show the purpose of the Sabbath, to come and to give rest. And so he's giving healing to this man so that he can enjoy that rest of God. And so he's showing this new kingdom, this new creation is coming uh, through means of what he's going to do. Right. So let's take a look at Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does these scriptures mean? Yeah, so oftentimes we think of salt as a preservative, uh, mm-hmm. and the way that this is often described is, you know, that if you are no longer living out your Christian faith, you can no longer be a preservative in the world or something like that. Right. Uh, again, anytime we read scripture, we need to ask, okay, what does salt have to do uh, with the people of God at this time? How would they have understood it? Uh, if we go into the Old Testament, one of the things that we find is that salt often had to do with covenants. 
We're going to do with priesthood, even the, the covenant of the priesthood. Right. right? So I think what we're seeing here is that Jesus is saying to his people uh, that he is creating a, a new covenant people, a new priesthood, and that they are going to have a covenant of salt, a perpetual covenant, one that is going to be preserved for eternity, uh, and that they are to live in this way. And if they don't live in this way, well, then they're no longer good for anything but to be thrown out on the manure pile. Uh, so I think that's how he's using the language there of, of salt. In the parable of the prodigal son, it seems as though the father celebrates the one who was lost and disobedient upon his return more than the son who had remained faithful. So if we look at uh, verses 1 through 3 in Luke 15, it helps us to understand who he's speaking to here. Right? So Luke 15, 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So he tells a parable of the lost sheep, and right. then he tells a parable of the lost coin, and then he tells a parable of the lost son, the prodigal mm. son. So we should read these um, parables together, uh, and we should remember that he is writing or he's saying these parables to, in some ways, indict or expose the Pharisees and the scribes. Right? Because they're thinking these unclean sinners are coming near to Jesus, uh, and the ones who are religious, the law keepers, uh, they're the ones who are having a problem with this. And so it seems as though that in this parable, he is speaking, actually a parable, not to just say, um, well, he's doing multiple things. One, he's saying that those who are lost, those who are the sinners, are welcomed in as they come and present themselves before the Father through the Son. But he's also saying that those who appear to be in the family, who appear to be faithful, may not be. Right. right, Because the older brother is exposed at the end of the parable. Oh, yeah, that's true. Right, Because he is grumbling uh, against his father for his compassion to the prodigal son. Right, So you go back and connect that with the Pharisees. Like, okay, this older brother is the Pharisee who is not celebrating the fact that he gets to be with his father all the time, but rather is grumbling that he has not gotten the inheritance to go and do whatever. And so it seems as though he's really indicting um, the self-righteousness of the older brother, exposing it as no righteousness at all. I've never seen that before. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. You could even say that there are like three sons in the, the parable, right? There's the prodigal son, right. right, who comes back and is saved. There is the older brother son who shows that he is self-righteous. And then there's the son of God who is mm. telling the parable. Right, right, yeah. Sometimes people want to say, look, there's no repentance here. Well, the turning around is repentance. Mm -hmm. There's no sacrifice. There's no justification uh, in a kind of a legal sense. He's just received back in. And some people will take that and say, all that needs to happen for salvation is for us uh, to turn ourselves back to God. God is ready to receive us at any moment. There's nothing that needs to be done. But of course, what does that miss? It misses the need for the cross right. and the resurrection and the change. There is a way that we need to be reconciled to God. God has something against us in our sin. And Luke 15 doesn't teach against that. Rather, it is just giving an element to say, it's inviting those who are sinners to come to him, knowing that the Son of God is on his way in Luke's gospel to the cross to make a means and make a way for the people to trust in Christ and come to the Father. You know, <clears throat> and hearing you speak, I don't know if this is applicable, but um, also I would say that when the son came back, he was he had a changed heart and he recognized that it was better to be a servant mm -hmm. in his father's house yeah. 
than to live in the world. That's right. And I think that, you know, in hearing you speak in, in your explanation, I think that does apply again to um, to us and being servants of Christ. Yeah. Um, instead of living in the world where we can be we can be rich and famous and we can have all these things. But absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day, it is better and celebrated by God when we come to him yeah. and we live under his authority and his rule. Yeah, I think one of the things we see in Luke 15 is that true repentance comes with true humility. Right. Where we are not coming into God's house and asserting ourselves, mm -hmm. either to say, look, God, I'll hear all the things I can do for you. Right. Right. Or uh, that we're going to go and work for him to mm -hmm. find a place there. Rather, we turn back with the greatest humility, willingness to be you know, a servant in his household, and yet he receives us with love. That's right. He clothes us with his righteousness. Mm -hmm. He receives us into his family and adopts us and gives us a place of significance, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because he's just that gracious. Yeah, we, should have a, uh, we should have a blog or a vlog on the parables. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, the explanation uh, of the parables because this conversation has given me more insight to that. I mean, I've heard this parable, I don't know how many times, sure. but, you know, I, I believe I'm walking away with more insight yeah, after maybe, this conversation. There are a couple of good things that you can read or even listen to on that. Maybe we can put a couple of links at the, uh, on the end as well. Yeah. And people who are interested in learning more about the parables can have some good resources there. So uh, we had a family book club in which we were reading Invasion of Other Gods by Dr. Jeremiah. One of the things we were discussing was how some Eastern religions believe in reincarnation. The story of Lazarus and the rich man came up in particular. We were discussing verses 25 and 26, which reads, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It seemed to us that these verses illustrate the finality of death from, the earth, from our earthly bodies. We took from this that if you do not accept Christ in this lifetime where there is no reincarnation or second chances, is this how we should read this? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, there's no such thing as post-mortem evangelism. Right, yeah. Right. There's some even who would claim the name of being an evangelical Bible believer uh, who would say that those who have not heard the name of Jesus, those who have not received the gospel, uh, will, when they die, be given a, a momentary choice you know, to, to follow the things of God or, or not. Um, that may sound nice. It's just not biblical. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, the teaching of the Bible... Uh, is a sobering reality, right? Because Adam led all humanity into sin, mm -hmm. and because through Noah, again, all humanity is related, and there was a knowledge of God at the beginning, those who do not yet have the gospel yet have a knowledge that goes back to that very beginning point. Right. Right? There is a law that is written on the heart of every single person. There's a moral law in the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a general revelation to the world that there is a God, and so many have then tried to come up with ways to worship that God. But that general revelation is not saving. Right. Right? It's enough to, to condemn, but it's not enough to save. And this is where the exclusivity of the gospel matters and mm. comes in. That the gospel is the means of salvation. That the name of Jesus Christ and knowing who he is and what he did on the cross and in the resurrection, this is the way of salvation. This is why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, because we want to reach the lost sheep of Israel, the lost sheep of Christ, before 
um, they perish. Right. Um, and so this is where there's an, an incredible imperative to, to share the gospel there because uh, there isn't a second chance uh, after death. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 is perhaps the, uh, the key verse uh, for this uh, when it says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and mm. after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, not, as, not to offer himself again, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Wow. Right? So there is one life that we are given, uh, and we have a responsibility to respond to that gospel message. And, and those who have not heard, we need to bring that to them. Right. Let's read Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than he should cause one of his little ones to sin. Is this a warning against those who are tempting God's children to sin? Yeah, it absolutely is, right? And this is just one of the things that has kind of motivated what we've seen um, in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, to respond to the, the reports of sexual abuse mm. uh, in churches uh, is that some of the greatest kinds of egregious sin are taken against children. Right. right? Those who have positions of authority, positions of trust, misusing that to hurt others. Mm. Of course, in this case, it's not speaking of sexual sin. It's talking about misleading them um, towards false teaching, mm. right? And just leading them away from the truth. Certainly, you could do that through sins against little children, right? Um, but it's more of those false teaching. And, and perhaps even more importantly to see that um, it's not just children in general that are here, uh, as if we think of just, you know, physical children, uh, but rather it's little ones. And the little ones here has to do with those who are of Christ, right. whether they are young or old. Right? If we go back to Luke 12, 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? And that kind of language of diminution, that language of little ones or little flock has to do with the care that God has for his children, right. whether they are 15 or 85, right? And so what he's warning is anyone who's going to stand against the people of God, the children of God, they will have to pay uh, with their lives, mm -hmm. right? The, the millstone will be tied around their neck and they'll be thrown into the sea because they're leading God's children whom he loves astray. Also in Luke 17, we found the following verses, um, 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Does this help us to think about the necessity for repentance when we forgive? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, conversation comes up about what can I forgive someone who hasn't asked for forgiveness? Right. Yeah. Right. Can I forgive someone? who has not repented. Uh, and I think because forgiveness is a transaction, it's not just an emotional feeling, it's not an emotional thing. Yes, there are emotions involved in it, but forgiveness ultimately is a, is a kind of legal transaction, mm. right? And in this case, God is not going to uh, forgive anyone unless they have repented and believed on Him, mm. unless they have turned, and like the prodigal son, unless they've returned to right. the Father, right? Unless there's a repentance there. And here, uh, he says to us, if they repent, then we have a requirement to forgive. And if we feel as though we cannot forgive, we don't have the resources to do that, it's to lead us back to the Lord 
to ask Him for more grace yeah. to be able to do that. To remember the forgiveness that we have received when Ephesians says we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Hmm. Right? There are going to come times when we are unable to forgive the offense of others against us. Which then leads us back to, well, remember how you've been forgiven. Mm -hmm. And as you have been forgiven in this great way, and it is manifold and manifesting in larger ways, it gives you more grace and power than to forgive others when they repent. But if they don't repent, then you can't make that legal transaction. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody is just kind of bound, unable to move forward, right? Paul will speak about this in Romans 12, that we are to be at peace with others as much as it is possible with us, right? We posture our heart towards those who haven't asked for forgiveness by being a peacemaker, right? right? By going to them and seeking peace. And if they refuse, well, again, we're not enslaved to them because of that. Uh, we can go back to the Lord and we can walk, um, you know, humbly before the Lord without being, you know, controlled by this other person. Um, but if they come to us, then asking for repentance, then we can rejoice in being able to grant that forgiveness to them. Uh, there are realities when there are some who may die never having repented for yeah, their sins. That's what I was just about to ask about. Yeah. Well, what, how does that apply? Like, so I have forgiven people um, for things that they have done to me. Yeah. Uh, without ever seeing them mm -hmm. again, yeah. um, and just deciding that you know to pray for them mm -hmm. and for and forgive the offense that I felt that they have um, set against me. Sure. So is is that possible because they didn't repent right. necessarily, or they may have. Yeah. They may have repented, you know, in reference to God, but I didn't. I didn't hear it. So I think just the language of Scripture. We want to be precise. So the okay. language of Scripture is that forgiveness comes when there is a, a legal transaction. Right. Right. If they haven't repented, then there's still something that stands between. Right. However, you've done what you need to do with your heart to posture in such a way. It's like, I'm not holding these things against them right. again. Right? And again, if it's a situation where that person, you could see them again and have a conversation with them again, you're ready for that. If not, before the Lord, right, you are standing without holding grudges and bitterness towards someone else. Right. Oh, okay. right? So it's the definition of the word. I think so. And so I think just if we want to be biblical in our language, that mm. there's something transactional, something legal about that. And so often we put forgiveness in the emotive category, mm -hmm. right? Like I no longer feel angry towards this person, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? But honestly, if there's somebody who has sinned in an egregious way and we just say, oh, it doesn't matter, right? Well, no, like it matters. Like right, there is yeah. justice that is going to be done either because Christ paid the penalty for that person's sin on the cross mm. or because that person for that sin will pay for it eternally in hell. Right. And I think we too easily and too quickly separate the emotional from the legal uh, and we need both of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what this verse helps us to get at. In the same chapter, verses 20 and 21 read, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Is Jesus telling them that because he is there with them, that the kingdom of God is also there with them? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think this has been really confusing because uh, the King James uh, translates it like this. It says, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And so it feels as though that the kingdom is not some sort of spiritual 
reality inside of us. Right. But it's better to translate it like the ESV does, to speak of it as the kingdom of God is in your midst. Mm. In that way, it's like, it's a real thing, right? It's a visible thing, in, right. in as much as to say, they see Jesus. Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom, is in their midst, and they see the power of the kingdom as he's healing people, mm -hmm. as he's forgiving people, right, yeah. right? As he's on his way to the cross and resurrection, like the kingdom has come. The king has come. He's the one now seated on the throne. His word is going out to the ends of the earth, and he is giving churches uh, the keys of the kingdom. Mm. Right? It does not mean that the kingdom is fully here, right. but it does mean that the kingdom is truly here. Mm. And we know that because the Spirit is now with us, the Spirit of Christ. And here in this verse, he's speaking of the fact that his presence indicates that the kingdom has come. Sometimes it's been helpful to think of this as this, uh, the difference between um, V-Day, or should I say, the difference between D-Day and V-Day, mm -hmm. right? D-Day, June 6th, was the day that the Allied forces stormed the beach there at Normandy, and this was kind of the, the, the crushing blow on the Axis powers in World War II. Right. But the victory was not yet at hand. Right. V-Day came later. Right? Jesus stormed the beach when he came in the incarnation, mm. died on the cross, and established his kingdom. This was his beachhead. And that then military operation is now spreading throughout the earth. Right. We're awaiting V-Day. I got you. Right? The victory has been secured in the cross and resurrection, but it hasn't yet been fully celebrated. Mm. Uh, and that's what we're waiting for. And that's what we as a church have an opportunity, and individuals have an opportunity, to proclaim the gospel in preparation for that final day of victory. Last question. It may take some time to answer this one. It comes from Luke 17, 34 through 35, which reads, I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and another left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean? Left behind? This is a word used a lot today, but how should we understand it? Yeah, so maybe you've seen the Left Behind movies, or maybe you've read the Left Behind books. Um, I actually don't think that that is uh, what is going on here, mm -hmm. right? To, to quote the brilliant theologian Aniga Montoya from The Princess Bride. <laughs> keep using that word, but I'm not sure you know what it means. Right. right? Uh, so I think that left behind here is actually doing the opposite, right? So this left behind idea um, is the belief in a, in a rapture uh, that came about 150 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was something that came in the early 1800s through John Nelson Darby and through the Plymouth Brethren and, and movements after that. Um, the key passage for that idea of rapture comes from 1 Thessalonians 4:17 where it speaks about being caught up in the clouds with him when the trumpet sounds. And, um, you know, it's often described as a secret rapture. Uh, we'll get to this when we get to 1 Thessalonians 4. It's like, it seems strange that it's a secret rapture when there is a trumpet that is being blown, yeah. and the angels are crying, and things like that. It seems a little bit more public uh, than, than secret. Um, but oftentimes, this passage here in Luke is read in light of that passage there, kind of bringing those two uh, together. I think we'd do better if we just read Luke on its own terms, mm -hmm. and if we read the Gospels in light of what we find in the Old Testament. Okay. Right? That's what we've been doing through kind of all these podcasts, is to see how are the New Testament documents, how are the Gospels fulfilling what we find in the Old Testament, right? right. So if we just go back to the Old Testament, here's what we might expect to find. Um, first of all, those who are left behind in the Old Testament are often the blessed ones. Those who are taken away are the ones who are cursed or brought under the judgment of God. Right, so a couple examples here. One is Noah and the other is Lot. Right, when God's judgment came upon uh, the earth at the time of Noah, those who were swept away right. were 
the ones who are judged of God. Mm -hmm. But those who are left behind, at least through the boat and then on the earth, they are the ones who are saved. Right. Or think about Lot. Lot is the one who is taken out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the fire of God came down on that city, and those who remained were Lot and his two daughters. Mm -hmm. His wife uh, went back to the city, so she turned around, became a pillar of salt. Seems more likely that she turned around and went back to the city, and right. there that uh, city became a monument with her as a part of it right. at that time. But those two illustrations seem to indicate that those who remain, those who are left behind, are actually the ones who do not receive the judgment of God. So this pattern is also seen in the prophets. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 6, uh, listen to these words beginning in verse 11. It says, Therefore I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street, and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. So here, the judgment of God is coming, and those who are taken are receiving that judgment. Right. Verse 12 says, Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. So in this case, it's actually those who are left behind who are not receiving that judgment of God. Those who are being taken away are. Or we see in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 11. And here's what it says. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. Pride comes before the fall. So mm -hmm. those who are being removed are the proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Right? God gives grace to the humble. Mm -hmm. right? A people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Wow, I've never considered this before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, oh, wow. So it, it turns around the way that we have often heard a popular understanding of being left behind, mm -hmm. right? And certainly the song, Wish We'd All Been Ready, mm -hmm. right? Well, this actually teaching goes exactly the opposite right. of that. We should all be ready, right? But when the judgment comes, it is wiping away those who are proud and exultant, and it's going to be remaining those people who remain in the Lord. So I can't wait to get to Thessalonians so we can understand <laughs> what right. 4, 16, 17, and 18 mean. That's right. We'll be there. We'll yeah. be there soon enough. Let me show you one more thing. So when we come to the Gospels from these examples of Noah and Lot, and then seeing how the language of Jeremiah and Zephaniah work, um, we see something where Jesus tells parables of the kingdom as well. In fact, listen to Matthew uh, chapter 13 and verse 24. Right? This is another helpful passage to understand these things. So this is the parable of the weeds, right? It says, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, and the weeds appeared also, and when the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Wow. So it's striking there that the ones who are taken away 
first right. are actually the wicked. Uh, and those that remain and are gathered later in this parable are the ones who are sown of God. So just looking at these verses from, you know, again, Noah and Lot, the prophets, and Matthew, my reading of this passage is that it doesn't just teach a secret rapture, uh, but it warns of a coming judgment where the wicked will be taken away and the righteous will remain, that they will be given the place that God will dwell with his people forever. So I'm going to ask what practical effects this has. So I think it relieves the fear that have come from many uh, who have watched a rapture movies, mm. right? You know, Thief in the Night, Left Behind. It's just like, okay, when's it going to happen? Mm-hmm. And there's this sense of fear that is there. Now, absolutely, we should have a sense of sobriety. We should have a sense of, you know, the time is drawing near. Um, but I don't think we have to have a fearfulness that we're going to be raptured up or we're going to miss the rapture or something to that effect as much as we are to be proclaiming the gospel, believing the gospel, and trusting that Christ will come to, to receive his kingdom at the right time. Right. I think also it calls us to be faithful to share Christ uh, before that judgment comes. And it rightly connects redemption to creation. Right? It was Plato uh, who taught that the world is only bad and we need to flee from the flesh, right? We need to get out of this place and be pulled out of the, the earth. But it's Jesus who took on flesh in order to redeem humanity and to make a new kingdom and a new creation where he will dwell with his people forever. Wow. So I think that helps us just to see a little bit more of how the, the storyline of the Bible is working together. This concludes our discussion in the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with the reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send it to viaemaeus at obc.org. May we respond in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.